This is Chapter 85 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we find out what it would take to prove the existence of God from international bestseller Peter James. An author from Norway provides a different perspective on the war on terror, and we travel to Cuba with the BBC's former woman in Havana. There are a lot of unanswered questions in life. Can you cry underwater? Why do we drive on parkways and park on driveways? Why are red buttons always the most important? But the biggest of them all? Is there a God? That's the question central to Absolute Proof, the new book from thriller writer Peter James. He spoke to our Pat Farnack about the real-life inspiration behind the book. This book began with a long-ago phone call. Yeah, it was back in 1989. I, I got a phone call out of the blue one afternoon from an elderly-sounding guy. and He said, uh, is that Peter James, the author? I said, yes. He said, thank God I found you. It's taken me two weeks. I've phoned every Peter James in the phone book in England. <laughs> uh, he said, I'm not a lunatic. Uh, uh, my name is Harry Nix, and I was a, a bomber pilot in the war, a recently retired university academic. I have been given absolute proof of God's existence. And I've been told, you're the man to help me get taken seriously. And I said to him, um, <laughs> Okay. He said, I-, I need to come and see you, Mr. James. I'm going to need four days of your time. I said, whoa, you know, I'm pretty busy. Four days is quite an ask. I said, do you want to tell me a little bit more? He said, yes. He said, my wife recently died of cancer. And before she died, we made a pact that I'll go to a medium and try and communicate with her. And I did this a few months after she passed away. And instead of my wife coming through, a man came through who said he was a representative of God. That God was extremely concerned about the state of the world and felt that if mankind could have faith reaffirmed, it would get us back onto an even keel. And as proof of his bona fides, he gave me three pieces of information which he said nobody on earth knows. And I said, and they are? He said, I've been given the compass coordinates of the location of the tomb of Archonarton. I've been given the coordinates for the location of the Holy Grail and the coordinates for the location of the Ark of the Covenant. So I go, okay. Anyway, I was fascinated, and I agreed to meet with him. Uh, I said, I'll give you half an hour, and if you convince me we need more time, we'll take it from that. He, he came down to my home the following Tuesday. I thought four o'clock was a safe time, because my wife would have been home at half five and could have bashed him on the head if he had me in a strangle. <laughs> and he, he was a very charming, nicely dressed guy in, in his early 70s. I said, you know, have you checked out any of these? He said, yes. He said, you know, I was a pilot in the war. I can navigate the Holy Grail. is at a place called Chaliswell in Glastonbury, which is, I'd never heard of Chaliswell at this point. And I discovered it's a holy site where Joseph of Arimathea was rumored to have brought the Holy Grail mm-hmm. and concealed it after the crucifixion. And he said, I've been dowsing there and I've been metal detecting and there was something in the exact spot, but it's run by a group of trustees, and they won't take me seriously. But I think, Mr. James, they would take you seriously. Uh, long, long story short, I have a sheer chance I had to go to Bristol the next day to do a BBC radio interview. And at the end of the interview, I'm just chatting with the presenter, and she suddenly mentions Chalice Well. And I felt a shiver. Wow. I, I, I was always sort of fascinated by coincidence, and I thought, this is mm-hmm. really weird. I've never heard of Chalice Well before in my life. And then yesterday, I hear, I hear about it, and today I'm hearing about it. 
And I said, what do you know about Charles Ward? She said, oh, my uncle's a trustee. <laughs> wow. I felt really freaked. And then I told her the story, and then I left. I phoned a friend of mine who was, at that time, Bishop of Reading, very modern-thinking clergyman called Dominic Walker, and I said, I need to come and talk to you. And we met two days later, and we had lunch, and I told him the story. I said, what do you think? And he said, well, firstly, to prove this, the enemy of faith. And he said, secondly, I would want more than three sets of compass coordinates to have proof of God. I said, what would you want? He said, I'd, I'd want something that defies the laws of physics of the universe and a pretty big miracle. And I said, and if somebody could deliver that, Dominic, what then? He looked at me and said, what I really think, that person will be murdered. Wow. You'd have every different faction of Anglican, Catholic, Judaic, Islamic, Sikhs, claiming ownership. And you'd have communist countries like China not wanting a higher power usurping them. And I thought, yes, I have got my story. And that was, I've got the kind of makings of a really kind of big international thriller around this subject. And that, that was the starting point. And yet it took you 30 years to finish the story. It did. Part of the, the reason was that I felt that in order to write the book, I had to have a real understanding of all the world's kind of religions. So, and I was constantly under contract writing my kind of previous series and my Roy Grace books. Yes. So I was kind of sitting in the research and absolute proof in, in between. And I travel, I, you know, I spent time, I, I spent a week in, in a Greek monastic commune to kind of understand monks, because I have a, a monk who's a kind of key character in the book. And also, what I, what I needed for the book to work, for absolute proof to, to really work, was to have an ending that was something that would really wow any reader. I and mean, it's something that even a hardcore atheist would have a problem in dissing. Something yeah. as, as monumental as the sun rising from the west instead of from the east one day. And it was when I met my, my second wife, Lara, back in 2013, and I told her about all the research I was doing for this story, uh, my publishers had commissioned the book about 10 years before and kept waiting <laughs> patiently for it. And she, although not really a religious believer, became fascinated by the whole notion of what what would it actually take to prove that God, that God existed if you, if you could prove it? And what would be the consequence? And we started talking, going to Oxford and Cambridge, talking to all kinds of academics, theologians, hardcore atheists, Picking their, picking their brains and asking them those questions. And, and literally one morning at breakfast, Laura suddenly said, I think I've got the ending for you. And she had, oh. she had, it was, and it was just, and that was the moment that the whole book unlocked for me. And, and after 20, 26 years of <laughs> researching it, I actually wrote the book in, in eight weeks. It's the fastest wow. novel I've ever written, and it's the longest book I've ever written, and it just came pouring out of me. And I had huge fun writing it as well. It, it sounds like you did. And Mount Athos, uh, that monastery, figures in your story. And now, you were actually there? Did you actually visit? Yes, it took me almost two years to get in because Mount Athos is a very strange commune. It's one of those little finger-like peninsulas in Greece going out into the Aegean Sea. And it, there's no ra- there are 20 monasteries on it. Huge, huge monasteries. I mean, they, they're capable of taking hundreds of, of monks each, but they, they don't because of the population is fairly diminished. Yeah. 
Um, but they only allow 12 non-Greek Orthodox people to visit at any one time, and they only allow you to stay five days. It's a strange place because no woman has been allowed to set foot there since 960 AD when it was founded. They don't even allow female animals higher than a chicken, so you can't even have a female dog or cat. I went um, with the three friends, and we had, you have to present yourself to the monk bureau in Thessalonica, and these three elderly monks with beards down to their knees study you to make sure you're not a woman disguised in, in disguise. Oh. It's really bizarre. But if one thing that was really fascinating was when I got there, the first monk I met was an American, and I actually used in the book, guy called Pete, and he was the guest master at the first monastery we stayed in. And I said, oh, you tried to catch an American accent. He said, yeah, I'm from New Jersey. (laughs) I said, what brought you you here? And he said, well, he said, I I, uh, I was a long-distance truck driver, and before that I I did a night shift in McDonald's, um, and I had a some family who Greek Orthodox, and I came out to Greece, and I had an uncle I hadn't seen for 25 years who came to Mount Athos to become a monk. So I thought I'd come and see him, and I, I liked it so much that I've never left. And it was quite weird. I, I, you know, I said to him, what's it like to be a monk? And he looked at me and said, to be a monk, you have to absolutely believe. And I go, okay. And I said, you know, what, what's, what's your daily routine? He said, well, we get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, go down to the, the chapel and pray till half past six. Then we have breakfast. And breakfast is like eaten in about 12 minutes in silence while a monk... Not, you can't have any pleasure, so you can't enjoy your food. You can't swim in the sea if it's hot because that would be pleasure. And you're not allowed to laugh because that's pleasure. Wow. <laughs> and he said, we have breakfast. Then we pray again till nine. Then we do our jobs. He said, I'm the guest master, so I make the beds in, in the dormitories and I do all the laundry. Uh, then, then we'd pray again until 6, 6.30 in the evening when we have our evening meal. And then after that, we'd pray again for about 10 o'clock and then we go to bed. And I said, so you're praying about 15 hours a day? He said, no. I said, does it ever get boring? He said, sure, but you know, all jobs have boring bits. I said, you, you mean, what do you mean it's a job? He said, well, you know, we're praying for world peace. We're praying to try to stop the war in Bosnia. Wow. Uh, we're praying... He listed off a whole load of problems in the world that he was praying for. I said, but wait a sec, you don't have radio, you don't have television, you don't have newspapers. How do you know what's going on in the world? He said, oh, God tells us. Mm. That was a fascinating kind of insight. And I mean, with, you know, with the book, I've tried to make it into a real kind of twisty thriller, sort of very much in the sort of Da Vinci Code yeah. vein. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I've tried to put into a lot of kind of you know, if anyone's got a fascination for the argument for or against religion, I've tried to kind of balance it very fairly on both sides. I like some of your different plot drivers. One of them that really did it for me was the Tooth of Christ. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and I'm glad you like that too. I, I also love the uh, Monkey and Type. Well, I had a lot of fun with the Monkey and Typewriter. Yes. One of the big planks of modern atheists is the Monkey and Typewriter theory. Uh, Richard Dawkins had a kind of central theme in, in, in The God Delusion, that if you sat a monkey at a typewriter, given infinity and it just hammered the keystrokes forever, one of the combinations of keystrokes would be the complete works of Shakespeare. And, and that's used to explain how you and I are here having this conversation 
having arisen from a kind of primal swamp. And one of the things that really interests me about that theory is that there was another hardcore atheist called um, Anthony Flew. And Anthony Flew was a Cambridge professor, and for 40 years he was considered the world's most hardcore atheist, um, more than Dawkins. And in 2004, he changed his mind. And he wrote a book called There Is No God, and the no was crossed out and replaced with an A. And what changed his mind were, were, were fundamentally two things. One was the discovery by Crick and Watson of DNA. He just felt the sheer complexity of mm. DNA was beyond anything that could have happened randomly, however long mutations and natural selection be going on. And the second thing that changed his mind was the monkey and typewriter experiment. A friend of his, who was an astrophysicist, actually did the experiment. And he put six monkeys in a cage with a word processor with a perpetual paper feed and left them for 28 days. Uh, and at the end of the month, they, they peed all over it and they pooed on it. But they had typed 40 pages of typescript, of which there wasn't a single intelligible word, not even an A, the species aside. And Flew's friend did the math and calculated that the universe will run out of resources before a monkey types a single Shakespeare sonnet. Mm. I have to tell you that here in, in America, it's hard to get Peter James books. I mean, you go to Barnes & Noble and there might be two of them. And then there's P.D. James takes over. I know. They are trying to make kind of big inroads. And in fact, absolute proof is, did a very interesting experiment. Because I, yeah. I don't know if you know, but I, back in 1994 in the UK, Penguin published one of my novels uh, on two floppy disks. Was the yes, yes. First electronic novel. We've done another experiment with absolute proof in the, in the U.S. in that for, for 12 months from October the 4th of this year, it's only available as an audio exclusive. It's been narrated by Hugh Bonneville of, of Downton Abbey. And he's done an amazing job. It's available as an, as an audible exclusive, and then it will be in print in, from October next year. Okay. But it is available in print in English uh, from the U.K. And, and, and pretty much everywhere else in, in, in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am really aware that America is, I mean, I would love to be published much more kind of widely in America. And that is slowly happening. But I will work on my publishers and tell them, thank you for spreading the word. That's the nicest and, thing you could possibly do. And I was going to say, we'll we'll do our part in this end to get I the really word out. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Last question. Did this book, writing this book and researching this book and telling this story, did it change your mind about God? No, I, I, it's, it's a really interesting question you ask because I was at boarding school in England. I was at Anglican school. And we had religion rammed down our throat. We had to go to chapel every single day for 15 minutes. And we had to do two hours on a Sunday. We had to go for an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening. Mm-hmm. And teachers would watch us to make sure that we were praying and singing. And we would get punished if we if they decided we didn't look like we were praying enough. I mean, it was really weird, but that's how it was back, back then. And I left Charterhouse in 1968, and I, I was like, that's it, I'm done with the religion. And I was agnostic, boring, or atheist, but never, never enough to become a, a real atheist. I, I kind of left for a long time not knowing. And then the, the, this 28 years of research on this book has changed my mind. I've come around absolutely to the conclusion. I've talked to so many scientists in particular who have faith of some kind, who 
it's really hard to guess. And I, I, where I'm at right now, as a result of my searches, and I'm absolutely convinced that there is an intelligence behind the cosmos. To me, there's no question about that. And what's very interesting is the number of very bright and credible scientists who are also now coming around to that same conclusion. The, the head of NASA's $9 billion telescope, $9 billion telescope, about three, four months back, said that she was increasingly coming to the view that there had to be an intelligence behind the cosmos. Tim Peake, an astronaut who just recently mm. came back, said the same thing. And I think there's a growing, small, small but very strong groundswell of opinion away from the, the, the kind of the hardcore atheism we've had for so long. It fascinates me. I mean, I'm certainly going to write a sequel to Absolute Proof. And I'm, I'm not sure when I'm going to start it yet. I hope it doesn't take another 30 years. We've been talking to Peter James about his latest standalone book. It's called Absolute Proof. Things are never as simple as black and white, but sometimes we need to be reminded that that's the case. And that's exactly what Norwegian writer Damien Vitanza hopes to accomplish with his book, This Life or the Next. I dialed him up to talk about the fictional story based on over 100 hours of real-life conversations that he had with a young man convicted of fighting with terrorists in Syria. People really seem to think that the war on terror is black and white, but this book really shows that there are a lot of gray areas, and I think... You know, your chess analogy towards the end of the book really sums things up. You say that in chess, you start from one side and everything is black and white. In this game, the enemy could be anywhere and someone who was the same color as you could suddenly shoot you down. Is that what you yes. learned in all in the hours of conversations that you had with this this young rebel fighter? Absolutely. I think that was actually what motivated me in the first place uh, from the beginning when I when I met him. I and he started to say that well I have this story that I want to share and 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 I need help from you and so on. Um, I started to Google his name and I saw a picture of him, um, you know, uh, all masked and with a huge gun uh, posing in Syria, and uh, I thought of the the ideas that that I had myself about um, the foreign fighters and who they are and realized that my own opinions were quite black and white. While when I spoke to him, I was able to get that um, that image nuanced and see that there were many aspects that I hadn't thought about and, and that uh, some things, so what he said made sense and other things, of course, uh, were uh, a longer shot, but, but somehow it got more nuanced. Yes, that was what was interesting for me in this project from the first place. It's really hard to grasp why someone would leave their comfortable life behind uh, the person, the character in your book, as well as the person you sort of base this off of, you know, grew up in Norway and they joined a war that they didn't really know a lot about. Is it, I kind of got the sense from that there's this naivete uh, about him. Yeah, of course. Uh, uh, when he left, he was 22, and and that's the that's the deal with most people that go to to war, isn't it? They are young, uh, naive uh, people that are the pawns in a chess game of someone else, um, and and this is also the story um, of Tariq in the book. Um, but of course, that's also a bit too simple. Um, he did have thoughts 
Um, and it was the feeling of injustice that, that drove him. Of course, then mixed with the naivety. Uh, but in one sense, you can also say that he was very sensible and he was uh, empathic uh, um, in regards to the, the the suffering of the war in Syria. So that was also an aspect. You know, we all got these images of the Syrian war, and and most of us didn't care too much, or maybe we sent some money or some clothes. Um, but he wanted to do more, and that brought him on a on the on the let's say wrong path. Um, but this thing you said about leaving a comfortable life behind, I'm not sure how uh, good a life he left behind in Norway. I think if you look at the lives of people that have gone to Syria to join uh, ISIS or or other uh, groups in the insurgents, it's mostly people. Uh, statistically, you know, it's mostly people that have a criminal background. It's people that often don't have a, a girlfriend. Uh, they don't have a very interesting job or they don't have a job at all. They don't have any education. So I think it's something about um, not having so much to live for. And then you start to look for something to die for instead. How much of Tariq is based on this real-life person that you met, and how much of his story is fictional? <laughs> well, that's a little bit of of the um, um, of the, the let's say the game in this book as well that um, that one shouldn't know exactly. But for me, it was important that it had the core of something true. You know that that uh, his inner processes were real, that it's more or less uh, what he went through. Um, and then, of course, we had to fictionalize and mask things and blend and and and, 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 and mix things with also uh, things from, for instance, my life or, or, or I invented some things to, to protect people. Uh, so that was important. It couldn't have been a, a pure... Um, interview book, let's say, because uh, that would create too many difficulties and then we would know much less. But because it was fiction, let's say because we lied a bit, we could also have much more of the truth. So it's a bit of a paradox that you have to lie to uh, get more of the truth. But that was the case uh, in, with this with this book. And then you can ask, what about Syria? Um, of course, I couldn't, I haven't been in Syria myself, so how could I fictionalize and, and twist and turn the things you said? Well, in fact, um, I couldn't. So so how to deal with that? Um, and there I had to use much more of what he said, but there I'm pretty sure that he fictionalized himself. And I told him, listen, you can tell me about things you've see, done, and you can say that someone else did that, for instance. So you can tell much more, but you can you know, protect yourself by saying someone else did that, or you can, but it just has to be um, um, not necessarily true, but believable. Uh, and in fact, that's the first thing he says when he when he talks about entering in Syria from Turkey. He says, "Look, look, now you won't know exactly what's true and and not." And that I had to include in the book as well because I think it's really important for the reader to be aware that he tries to say tell the truth, but he cannot he cannot say everything because that will cause a lot of trouble for him and and people he he cares about. 
And the book is also written in a really interesting fashion. It's not a straightforward account. It's him retelling his story to the writer. And I have to admit, yeah. it it threw me off at first. And then I think it's a, <laughs> a, a, a couple of chapters in, you kind of explain why it's being written in the way it's being written. Why did you decide yeah. to do in that style? Well, I wanted to put the reader in the same position as I was. I was there listening to his words. And, uh, and of course, I was doubting sometimes. I, and I got a, um, a feeling of who he was through the way he spoke. In fact, that was something he told me much later after I had uh, chosen this, this, this way of writing and this way of, 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 of uh, creating the book, that if you listen to, to someone and how they speak, you get a, a flavor of their heart. And, and I think that's true. And I wanted the reader to have that, that flavor, that taste. Um, and then they can, they can judge him the way uh, they like. You know, the readers can, can, can decide for themselves. They can doubt what he say, or they, or they can, can believe it, or they can, can take their, the position they like. But for me, it was important to put the reader in the same position as I was as a listener. Has he read the finished book? Yeah, yeah, he has. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he felt, uh, he felt, uh, I would say he felt good about it. I think it was good for him to say at least what he could say. You know, he wanted to say as much as possible and he really did. And, um, and he feels, it feels, I think it feels good for him that it found its shape and that now he can kind of, it's more easy for him to close that chapter and look ahead. I mean, he wants to to I'm I'm still in touch with him and 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 it seems to me he wants to live a, a more normal and relaxed life and he's doing his best to prepare for uh, working when he gets out of prison as a car mechanic and in fact there are people in in Norway who want to help him on the right path so so that's good about uh, the system here in. in in Norway, at least, that uh, it seems to be helpful in getting people on the right track. What do you hope readers take away from this book? I think what you mentioned in the beginning about loosening up on this uh, black and white uh, interpretation of of the of the world or of uh, of someone taking a choice like that. I think that's uh, rather useful in a word world that is increasingly becoming. Uh, black and white, there are people that are um, making a life or, or, or politicians that are um, um, getting a lot of, of votes on trying to to uh, sell this black and white story of the world. And I think we should avoid that because it's not that simple, even though it, that would be comfortable if it was that easy, but it's just not. So... Uh, so I think that's uh, a key a key point, and then you have all of the different uh, nuances of of how to understand the Syrian war or how to understand the process before. Also, you know, as a youngster, when you don't feel you fit in somehow, how do you deal with that? And uh, and to reflect upon what mm, what makes you as a human being take uh, such an extreme choice. And in the extreme, in the when you look um, on the outsiders, it's kind of a mirror also 
or what the mainstream culture is. So by understanding the periphery, you also get an understanding of the center of the culture and what it's about. I think that's important as well. I th- I'll tell you what I also took away is that there may be hope for everyone if you've made a life decision that you might regret that there is hope for a second chance. Personally, that's what's really been good for me. This is what I, I really um, <laughs> uh, have seen and experienced. You know, I, I start uh, to get to know this guy and I have all my ideas uh, about his, his, his life. And, and, and he has been really a hard guy. He, he says so himself. And now I see him uh, developing as a more, you know, with a more nuanced uh, um, way of looking at the world and, and, and growing as a human being. And I see him, many people want to give him this second chance in at least the Norwegian system. And I think it's really uh, worth it. Uh, because uh, if you don't, then people will just harden and it will just get worse. Uh, whereas uh, he's saying now that when, while in prison, he has met so many people that want to, to actually help him, that he feel how can he hate Norway? You know, how can he hate the West when he gets uh, such a support? So, so I think there's a lot of things to learn from that. And, and from what I know of the American uh, prison system, I think that's, that's something to, to think about, to, uh, to dare to give people a second chance. That is definitely a lesson that uh, we as a whole can take away from it. So the, the book is called this, this Life or the Next. Damien Vitanza, thank you so much for, for taking some time in your busy lecture schedule to talk to us today. <laughs> thank you so much. And, and, uh, and greetings to uh, all of you on the other side of the pond. What do you think of when I say Cuba? Your thoughts probably range from Castro sonic attacks in the Bay of Pigs to great music, mojitos, and Ernest Hemingway. But there's so much more, and former BBC Havana correspondent Sarah Rainsford dives into all the island has to offer, both the good and the bad, in her book, Our Woman in Havana. She called me from her current post in Moscow to chat about the book. You've been stationed in Havana, Madrid, Istanbul, now Moscow, where you're calling me from, and have worked in Afghanistan, Iraq, Ukraine. And I guess my first question to you is, why is your first book about Cuba? (laughs) Gosh, that's a good one. Um, I guess partly because I felt like I left Cuba with a lot still to say, Um, and partly because I felt like Cuba wasn't really as well understood as some of the other places where I've worked. So there's a huge number of books about Russia, lots of people trying to understand the enigma of this vast country. But there's not that much, especially for a British audience, about Cuba. I think, I guess, in the United States, it's a much bigger issue. Uh, in the UK, it's much more a travel destination. And I think lots of people I, I would meet would sort of talk to me in very stereotypical ways about Cuba. And I sort of wanted to shake them a bit sometimes as they there's a lot more about this country that maybe you don't understand, or maybe it would be good for you to know, or or perhaps I'd like to try to explain to you. And you know, you'd hear what tour guides told uh, people visiting and you would see the kind of experiences that people had when they came. And yes, it was one part of Cuba, but it wasn't the whole island. And I think I sort of wanted uh, the freedom of, a, of, of the scope of a, of a book to actually explain 
more for people who hadn't seen all of the reports I'd done from the island, a bit more to sort of get beneath the skin of the country and try to try to explain it, particularly to, to a British audience, but of course to American audience too, but from a British perspective. So you explore the, how the country has changed from the 50s through the early days of the revolution, the lean year of the 90s, your time there, the times that you've gone back and what you've seen. It's really an understatement to say that a lot has changed over the years. A huge amount, yes. But, you know, the kind of odd thing about it was that I was living in Cuba for around about three years in Havana. And the time I was there, although people would talk about huge change, it really didn't feel like that on the ground. And it didn't feel like it for Cubans either. And I guess, you know, I'd talk to people and they'd sort of remind me about the perspective. So I'd talk, for example, to to one of the most famous authors in Cuba, uh, Padura, and he would say to me, look, you know, when I was growing up, I couldn't even listen to the Beatles. So don't underestimate the scale of the change that's taking place here. But at the same time, I'd talk to younger people, younger Cubans, and they were, in, in some cases, in many cases, they were people who were just desperate to get out because they felt that their lives were wasting away uh, when the change that they wanted to see happen in the country just wasn't happening fast enough. So I would say to them, for example, but there are huge economic and social reforms taking place here. You know, this, this, is, a, this is a moment of transformation for your island. And they just look at me and kind of say, look, you know, I'm 35, I'm heading towards 40. My life is, is sort of uh, drifting away from me, slipping away from me. I want to live my life. And therefore, in the case of, of several people that I, that I remember very vividly, uh, they wanted to get out. So I think, you know, it's about perspective. Yes, huge changes. Yes, Raul Castro uh, launched a whole process of economic reform and social changes too. But still, I think for a lot of Cubans in particular, it, it's very, very slow. And, and many of them were, were, were just giving up on the, the process of change and trying how they could, however they could, to get out. I think you do a really good job in the book of showing that it's almost a country of two minds. On one hand, you have people who are torn for this love of country, this idea of patria. And then on the other side, it's the things that they can't have or wanting to leave and and trying to balance the two. Yeah, and I think it is a balancing act. You know, on a very basic level, it's about day-to-day getting by. And there's this... Uh, verb in Spanish, resolver, you know, everyone's trying to resolve their problems, they're trying to, to find solutions on a, on a very, very practical level, you know, whether it's finding the spare parts to keep their car going, whether it's finding, you know, the right kind of uh, food or, or finding some way of getting um, more fashionable clothes, for example, uh, when, uh, you know, the state shops are full of pretty unattractive <laughs> offerings and uh, the, the private businesses that were set up to sell clothes, for example, when I was there, uh, thousands of them were then shut down by the government. So, you know, there are basic things which are quite difficult on a, on a day-to-day level. But at the same time, you know, it, it is a hugely proud country and it is a country with a, a fascinating history that people are uh, genuinely uh, excited to tell you about and to share with you. And, and I think that sense is something which is really interesting to me as a, a sort of uh, cynical Brit, I guess, living on, a, on an island which is, which is so passionate about its history, its independence, its identity. Uh, and that sort of sense, I, I think, does does sort of uh, does remain very strong, and you do feel it when you talk to Cubans. Um, but I guess, you know, I suppose then on top of that, there's this sense that, you know, yes, they're proud of their revolution, they're proud of some of the achievements of the revolution, but they do feel many of them that that's got a bit stale now, and that they're looking for something else. They're looking for for a new perspective, I guess, many of them uh, for the future. So I also want to talk a little bit about the 
the journey that's kind of woven through the book and following in the footsteps of Graham Greene's Our Man in Havana. And I guess for a U.S. audience, they might not be completely familiar with with him, his history and his writings. But talk to us a little bit about why you chose to take that approach. Well, there's one sort of reason which is very personal, which is that every time uh, when I first got on air from from Cuba, which first of all, I should say, was a pretty difficult thing to do. Um, Bearing in mind, when I I first arrived in Havana, there was almost no internet that I could access. If I wanted to get online, I had to go to a hotel. And if I was trying to file video for a a TV report, it would take hours and hours and hours. So it was pretty frustrating to try to broadcast from Havana in those uh, early days. This was back in 2011, I guess. Uh, It has improved slightly, but not not a huge amount. So anyway, when I finally got on air and, and started, you know, launched into my first report, the, the presenter introduced me as over to Our Woman in Havana. Mm-hmm. And the reference was, of course, to Graham Greene's novel, Our Man in Havana, which is all about this hapless British spy. Uh, he was a, a, a fictional figure, obviously, but he was a, a vacuum, clean seller, vacuum cleaner seller uh, in Havana who gets recruited basically to work for British intelligence. And uh, it all goes horribly wrong. <laughs> uh, and for, for many Brits, when British people, when, when you hear the word Havana and you hear about someone stationed there, whether it's a diplomat or a journalist or, or, or whatever, they often and say, oh, our man or our woman in Havana. So there was that kind of immediate sort of personal connection. Um, But also when I first moved to Havana from Spain, I was based in Madrid at the time, a friend of mine sent me a a present and there were two things in the the parcel. Uh, One was a head torch, which I didn't really understand initially, but I soon found out was because there were so many blackouts, there was so little street lighting and there were so many potholes in Havana that a head torch was pretty handy. Uh, But the other thing was it was a copy, a hardback copy of Graham Greene's novel. And it became, you know, in a way when I was writing the book, it became like my guide to an, another side of the city. It, it became through the novel and then through Graham Greene, the author himself, a way of looking back in time to the history pre-revolution. Graham Greene used to travel to Havana a lot in the 1950s. And basically, he was a man who liked uh, the brothels. He liked the casinos. He liked uh, the good time Havana of Batista's days. He turned a, a very, very blind eye to the brutality of those years. But he went there uh, for fun. It was a tropical paradise for Graham Greene as it was for many Americans in those days. And so I used him as a way to explore the the backstory of pre-revolutionary Havana. And then he he did visit as a journalist in the 60s and he met Fidel in 1983. So I sort of used him to sort of trace a line, a British line, um, through the history of Cuba and to try to sort of make associations and and parallels with with, uh, the Havana that I knew, the city that I knew uh, so many years later. I I don't want to give anything away, but I think one of the more interesting paths you end up wandering down is your search for Superman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, that comes from the sort of the seedy back streets of Havana, which Green was so enticed by. I mean, he was a man with quite peculiar tastes. And this Shanghai theater was one of the places he visited very often. And Superman was a very well-endowed performer, let's say, who appeared there on a regular basis. So Graham Green used to go and see him perform. And he went back after the revolution looking for him and he'd vanished. So I sort of went back to see if I could find Superman. And that led me down some very interesting paths, let's say. <laughs> What's your most vivid memory of the the years that you spent in Cuba? It's difficult because if I think of Havana now, there are two two completely opposing things that that sort of come to mind. One is I have to say professionally this kind of stifling sense. It was it was a, the, probably the most difficult place I've ever worked in, and that sounds crazy because anyone who's been there probably has been seduced by the beauty of Havana, the incredible warmth of the people, the amazing music and culture and all the rest of it, the vibrancy of the island, which which is there almost 
partly because of, partly despite the system of politics. Um, so when I say stifling, I just I, I remember as a journalist desperately trying to get access to things, to film, to interview people, to speak to. And the great difficulty of doing that in a country where there is a one-party system where you have to get permission from the government to speak to anyone who is in any way connected to the state. And of course, that's a huge number of Cubans. And then people who are not connected to the state, if you want to interview them on camera, you've got to bear in mind that they're very restricted in what they can say. So you know, tourists have this idea of a, of a, of a fun-loving people, but, but, you know, try to talk to someone on camera about politics and, and you see very, very quickly uh, the restrictions that, that do exist still. So for me, it was professionally a difficult place to work, a challenging place to work. Uh, and that's kind of always in the back of my mind when I remember Havana. But at the same time, you know, it was a place of, of great friendships, of, of, of incredible stories, human stories, you know, meeting people who have incredible tales, personal stories of, of um, the revolution, for example, itself, you know, can tell fantastic historical tales of, of their own uh, journey through the revolution of Cuba. And just people who are, I suppose, um, inspiring in the way that they, they get by on a, on a day-to-day basis. So I've met some incredible people. And, and as I mentioned, you know, the music itself, that the sounds of Havana are, are one, is one thing that's just kept me coming back there time and again. We haven't really talked about the Castros too much, and I'm going to kind of skip over that a little bit because I think in the U.S. people really have a sense of who they are and what they do, albeit sometimes it might be a little one-sided. But my question to you is, um, with relations with the U.S., the history with the U.S. being as they are, what would you say to an American who is on the fence about going to visit Cuba? I'd say, like anywhere, you've got to go to have an opinion. Um, I don't think you can judge from the outside. I think you need to go and you need to talk to people. And you can talk to people more and more now. And I think that is one thing that's changed. You know, it, it's very different for a journalist with a camera and a microphone trying to, to get people to talk talk honestly and to open up. But, you know, one thing that has definitely changed uh, since the economic reforms began back in 2011 is that people have begun to feel more free to, to share their views, to, to, to speak more openly about what they think. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really valuable thing for anyone. It's not just journalists who need to, or who perhaps uh, could, could learn more about the world. I think you know, anyone who, who uh, is curious uh, needs to go and, and speak for themselves. So, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, I talked about these kind of rosy tinted spectacles that some people tend to have about Cuba, particularly in Britain, uh, people who uh, maybe think of uh, the, the great benefits of, of socialism. They always talk to me, for example, about oh, what a wonderful health service Cuba has. Well, certainly there are some positives uh, that remain uh, from the great socialist experiment. But I think it's interesting to go and try and talk to Cubans about their own experience of their own health service uh, and, and see how they how they experience it themselves on a day to day level. So I think, you know, you need to go, you need to see, you need to speak to people, you need to enjoy the amazing uh, architecture, the fantastic scenery, the, the gorgeous countryside of Cuba and the, the music and the, and the culture. But you also need to talk to the people and you need to ask them what they think about their politics, their lives, and their futures. Because I don't think it's for us to judge from the outside. I think it's for the Cuban people to to say uh, what they want and, and how they see things. Well, the book is Our Woman in Havana. Sarah Rainsford, thank you so much for taking some time. I know it's been a, a busy news cycle over there in Moscow for you, so I appreciate you finding some time for our podcast. Thank you. My pleasure. And that does it for us this week. Next week, we'll feature not one, but two best-selling and legendary female authors. 
Barbara Taylor Bradford and Mary Higgins Clark. Definitely a chapter you won't want to skip. Until then, find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.